You guys can give them a round of applause. They did great. Good job, kids. I got to say, uh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit jealous. I feel like that congregation there did better than you guys do for that lesson. So they paid attention. They answered well. <laughs> Megan's doing a great job. Thank you so much. And uh, this is a great opportunity for us to just really learn what our kids are learning uh, and to help support them. And also, if you don't volunteer in our kids ministry, look at how easy that was. See, you could do that. They did great. You guys could volunteer in that. So, all right, we're going to move on into our sermon this this morning. uh, We are continuing in our sermon series, Worship for Weary Souls, Communal Habits and Daily Rhythms of Grace. Uh, And we've been walking through pieces of this liturgy uh, in the Daily Prayer Project. And so we're going to continue that this morning. Uh, But I want to ask you a question as we get started. When was the last time you had sustained silence with God. Sustained silence with God. Now, some of you are probably like, I I don't know that I've ever had sustained silence at all, not just with God, but just in life, right? And when we talk about sustained silence with God, we're not talking simply a lack of external noise, though certainly that would be the case but also a lack of internal noise. A lack of accusations that we hear in our head or shame that we experience or some other way in which our time with God is crowded out by our own thoughts and experiences. Like real silence before God, just listening to God. We're not very good at this, are we? I'm guessing, if you're like me, that this portion of the Daily Prayer Project, hopefully you've been experiencing some of this, but my guess is that this portion of the Daily Prayer Project has been pretty challenging. In the adoration section that we are looking at, so uh, I think, uh, oh yeah, here we go. Uh, Throughout this thing, uh, this liturgy, we've been looking at all of these pieces, call, psalm, and this week we are on adoration, uh, worship of God in silence and in song. And my guess is that many of you have thought, song sounds nice. Let's do a song. There are some songs in the back of this book. Let's play a song during this adoration section. Because the silence makes me very uncomfortable. I don't really like to be silent before God. I don't really like to be silent at all, actually. And so, it's difficult for us. Hopefully, the Daily Prayer Project has helped us learn a little bit about that. But we're going to focus this morning. We're going to get to worship and song uh, near the end. But I want to spend our time talking about worshiping God in silence. Because I think this is one of the more countercultural things of this daily liturgy, and one of the more difficult ones, and yet I believe it actually will help us quite a bit. I believe there's actually quite a cost to uh, our lack of silence. This thing's not working. You want to just switch to the next one? All right, good. Uh, I, I believe there is a cost to our lack of silence. And maybe you don't think that there is. It's no big deal, right? But actually, what happens when we try to be silent before God? We get pretty uncomfortable, right? We experience quickly 
doubts creep in. Shame. Accusations. All of a sudden, as soon as the noise is gone and we try to be silent before God, it actually gets very loud in our heads. We wander away. Our thoughts wander away quickly. And then we feel more shame that we can't even spend 30 seconds just thinking about God. And so we avoid it. And we're actually pretty good at avoiding silence. American culture has many things that could be considered defining features, but the ability to invent things to avoid silence might be a good defining feature. We're really good, we're really good at inventing things so that we can avoid silence. But when we avoid silence, we miss out on deep worship with God. Deep intimacy and connection with God. Not just in the moment of silence, but we're going to see as we move through this liturgy, I believe that the high point of this daily liturgy is the abiding section, the deep communion and fellowship with God. And if we gloss over worshiping in silence, when we get to the abiding section, we're actually going to be missing out on something. That this is a way to prepare us to worship God, not just in the individual moment, but also further on. It builds to a feast, which I believe is the abiding section. And we do need to hear from God. Absolutely, John. We need to hear from God. And so we are content because it's hard to skip over it which leaves us with little depth in the abiding. So we go on to just something else. And the world gives us plenty to move on to. And instead of sitting in worship of God in silence, we are content to just constantly crave. Why? Well, because humans are made to worship, and without a depth of connection with God, we will seek substitutes that will create that depth, but nothing can. And so we end up just walking around craving more and more. We are content to live in a state of craving rather than experience a feast of satisfaction in silence. So this morning, we're going to look at a passage in which Jesus talks a little bit about this uh, in a sort of indirect way and models some of these things. And so what it looks like then for us to step into this. So if you want to throw that up, Luke 5, 15 through 16. So this is, uh, Jesus has just healed a man with leprosy. And what he does early on in the Gospels, you'll see this kind of throughout all four Gospels, but early on in the Gospels, Jesus constantly is instructing people after they have an encounter with him to kind of remain silent about what they did, about what happened. And there's uh, various reasons for this, and and depending upon which Gospel you're in, it kind of uh, connects with a theme in which uh, Jesus is determining how he will uh, reveal himself rather than just simply allow the popular culture to reveal who he is, he's going to be the determining factor of how he is revealed. And yet every time he tries, people just go tell other people about what he did. What he did. 
Uh, because when you experience the Son of God and are miraculously healed, you can't but speak about it. And so he instructs this man that he's healed with leprosy to just go and present himself to the priest in the normal fashion in which he would be declared to be clean, but not to tell anyone about how it happened. And this is what it says. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster, and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. Vast crowds show up, and instead of the, what we would naturally think would be the result of this, so Jesus continued to teach and heal and became more and more famous. So Jesus set up a church building so that more and more people could come and listen. No. What does it say? But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. What is this wilderness? This word uh, can be translated desolate place or quiet place. It is a place in which there aren't people around, right? It's out in the woods. It's out in the, well, not in the woods, right? Out in the desert, right? In the first century. But it's out away from the crowds, away from people. There's another interaction in the Gospel of Mark in which Jesus uh, heals some folks and then disappears early in the morning and the disciples are looking for him. And they're like, Jesus, there's more people. What are you doing? And he had snuck away early in the morning to be away in a desolate place by himself to pray. What do we think Jesus is doing in this prayer time? Certainly he is probably praying to God. He's probably speaking to God. But ultimately, this prayer is a communing with God, a worship in the wilderness. Probably includes some silence before God, listening to God, some singing, some prayer, some time connecting with his Father. He was withdrawing away to worship. This Withdrawing to worship is what I believe that this adoration section of our liturgy is about. Withdrawing away to worship. This silence and solitude as well as singing to the Lord. Now, if this is the liturgy of Jesus, one of the things that we've been doing as we walk through this is contrasting what is the liturgy of Jesus with the way in which the world is seeking to form us. What is the liturgy of the world? This practice of worship that the world instructs us through habits that we pick up to to draw us away from Jesus. Well, I think we've already mentioned it, but because we are worshiping creature, the world offers us substitutes so that the liturgy of the world is craving. And when we as Christians are drawn away from worshiping Jesus and away from silence before God, we are content with craving. Content to just crave. We fill all of our space and time with things to do. To fill this void that we feel in our person. And so we're constantly filling it with more and more things. And everything around us is designed to create this sense of anxious craving that we can never be truly satisfied. 
Certainly, that's because that's what humans do, right? We're worshiping creatures, and if we're not worshiping the God who really is, then we're going to not be satisfied. But it's also because in our culture of capitalistic consumption, if I can get you to have an insatiable appetite for something, you will pay over and over again for that thing. If I can key in on something in which you desire something, I can get you to pay lots of money to try to satisfy that thing that you want. Now, I believe that there are big ways in which we do this, certainly, but I also think there are some small and subtle ways that you and I embrace this reality, where we're content to crave the, real, uh, the things of the world rather than connect with God. So I want to hit, hit on a few of these things. Now, again, this is not, just like we, I've said on other places, this is not like a moral diatribe against uh, any, uh, any of these things, like, you sinners, look at what you're doing. No, it's just a way of us to notice small and subtle habits that we don't even think affect us, but actually are affecting us in profound ways, okay? So some small and subtle ways that we do this. Now, you might not think that these connect, and maybe they don't, because who knows if my brain was working this week or not. But if they, I think they do. So just bear with me for one moment, all right? So some small and subtle ways we do this, where we create this contentment with craving. The phone upgrade. A phone upgrade. Now, this is how this works, right? A new phone comes out every year, Right? For whatever your favorite phone company is, we don't have to start any debates around here, but whatever your favorite phone company is, they actually have uh, release parties, essentially, right? They invite people in to show you these new things. They walk around on stage looking all slick, and then they, get real, they, they play the videos where they get real quiet, and they're like, the best ever created. You're like, yeah, last year was the best ever created. Of course this is the best ever created. A phone that can simply call people. And you're like, oh, awesome, man. That's so cool. We've never thought of that one before. Pictures that can take pictures in space. And you're like, wow, I, I think I need a phone that can take pictures in space. Like, that sounds, I'm going to go to space next week. I think we should get that. Right? Like, th- these features that are insane, right? But the phone releases every year. But most of us, if we're on some sort of plan, right, our phone contract is for two years. But wait, we'll let you turn it in early so that you can upgrade. We'll let you turn your old phone in early after a certain period so that you can upgrade and get the best phone. Now, we'll lock you in for another two years. It'll be fine. We'll give you some discounts, all this stuff, right? Now, this doesn't seem like it fits, but think about how it creates a year-long craving for the next thing. A craving for something new, and we don't deny ourselves this new thing. We are craving it, and so we're going to go after it. But almost immediately when you get that new phone, right, play with it for like a week, and it's super cool, and then it just isn't all that cool. It still just communicates with new people and does the same thing that the old one did, right? It doesn't satisfy, does it? And yet we still crave for more. We crave for the next thing always, right? It's not just a phone update, right? This is a a silly example, but this kind of a very real, small, subtle habit 
that affects how we are actually being formed. But literally everything about our culture is about breaking news. The next thing. Something new. Get it faster. Get the information to you faster. Get new information faster than anyone else can. And so we actually spend our days craving new information, don't we? We refresh our feeds over and over again so that we can get new information because we're craving some new information that will allow us to not have to sit with who we actually are because we can think about someone else. Uh, I, I, I will confess I felt some of this because uh, this week because the NBA started their free agency and people are demanding trades and it's like, oh, did, did it happen yet? Did that big trade happen yet? Who signed who yet? Oh, let me refresh that thing. And maybe it's not the NBA for you. Maybe it should be. But maybe it's not the NBA for you. Maybe it's something else. But whatever it is, right, you want constantly to learn the new thing about it so that you don't have to sit and think about the things that you currently can. Yourself before God. We just fill ourselves up with new things over and over again, which creates in us a fear of missing out, right? It creates in us this FOMO, this fear of missing out. We're obsessed with making sure we don't miss out. But when we don't miss out on one thing, right, that we were obsessed about not missing out on, as soon as we're there at whatever thing that was, we're already thinking about the thing that we're missing out on by being at the thing that we didn't want to miss out on. Anyone else feel that? Is it just me? Is it just me? Right? Just me. All right. All right. It's just me. So I'm just really messed up, right, guys? <laughs> no. no. Like, the reality is we do this, and it's because we're content to constantly be craving, to not actually sit and be at rest with who we are and who God is. We have no space or margin in our lives. We're constantly doing something. Constantly filling our life with more noise, right? Because we got the latest phone, we got some Bluetooth headphones for it too, right? Because it came with it, right? In that new deal package, whatever, right? And so we're constantly listening to something, right? Headphones, and then we get in the car and we turn on the radio or a podcast or we get home, we turn on the TV. Something is constantly filling the background noise. And even when we're being productive, doing our work, we try to add productivity to it, right? So it's like, well, I can multitask. I can listen to something that is productive and good while I'm being productive and good. We multitask constantly. Creating this constant craving to do more, make more, be more. Constantly, we are trying to just add just a little bit more. We can be a little bit more efficient in this. We can be a little bit more, uh, uh, get a little bit more out of life. Even in our times of rest, we're constantly doing multiple things, right? Right? Not just am I watching a television show to rest a little bit, but I'm also scrolling on my phone at the same time because I have to get more. I can't be satisfied. Now, certainly in those small ways, that is forming us 
to be a certain kind of person that is constantly craving and can't sit at rest. And also, those small things contribute to the major things. Certainly, the major idols of our culture contribute to this craving. We have a craving for money that manifests itself in greed constantly. Now, Christians are very quick to admit their sins in multiple areas. Greed is not one of, that we like to admit in because we're not greedy people. But when we actually look at our lives, we're consumed by greed. Lust is a craving for sex and for pleasure. This craving that our culture feeds us, we feed into. Or pride, a craving for power and prestige. All of these big things are formed by all these small, subtle habits, which sends us into craving more and more. Now, when we're dissatisfied with those things that we're craving, what does it do to us? It leaves us in a place of shame and internal turmoil, right? We're like, oh man, I should be better than this. I love Jesus. I should be better than this. I should be loving Jesus more. I should be telling people about Jesus. I should be reading my Bible. And then we just heap this shame upon ourselves, which does not make us run to Jesus. It makes us run from Jesus. We're content to just crave more things because we feel inadequate. And if I can't quiet my inner shame, I'll just run to fill my life with more noise. This craving will lead to a feast of consuming, which is what we're going to look at when we get to abiding. The liturgy of the world is that of consumption. The liturgy of Jesus is that of abiding. And our adoration will lead to a feast of abiding. So if that's the world's liturgy, how do we often come up with a solution for religion? Right? We've been contrasting this, the liturgy of Jesus, from the liturgy of the world and the liturgy of religion. Because what happens is when we're encountering what the world is seeking to do in shaping us, we usually run in the opposite direction, and it doesn't actually ever work. We actually need to center ourselves on Jesus. But in the opposite direction, I believe that we try to jump into religious noise. We go from external noise of the world to the external noise of religion. But as uh, in uh, his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, I highly recommend this book. He's got a whole chapter on silence and solitude. Really great book, helpful resource. He asks a question perceptively in, in the book that says, could it be that we're using external noise to drown out internal noise? The knee-jerk reaction is to actually do the exact same thing in religion. We actually just fill it with more religious stuff. But what if all that religious stuff is just noise to overtake our burdened consciences? And what if, more importantly perhaps, that religious stuff is just noise to God? Amos 5, oh, this is working again, sweet. Amos 5 21 through 24 says this, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. This is the Lord speaking to Israel through Amos. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice 
an endless river of righteous living. Religious praise that doesn't lead to life transformation is just noise. It's just noise. In this scenario, we bring praise for some gain. uh, We bring God praise for some gain to us, right? We just want to drown out our guilty conscience. And so, rather than run to all of the things of the world, we're just going to fill up our life with more and more religious stuff. Or we bring praise to God because we think that God needs us somehow. And it leads just to the same type of craving, but religiously. Songs with no heart transformation or heart movement. Religious practice without intimacy with God. And religious praise with no heart change that leads to life transformation. Right? That's what... Amos is talking about here. Israel had done a a great deal of injustice, was not actually doing what God had called them to do, living in a way that loved and honored their neighbors. And what he's saying is, don't bring me all this love of God stuff if you're not living it out in the world around you. If you're not actually loving neighbor, if you're not actually being transformed by your relationship with me, it's just noise. Another, to quote another author, Henry Nowen, in his book, Reaching Out, Henry Nowen is a a phenomenal author on things like this. He says, when we do not enter into that inner field of tension where the movement from illusion to prayer takes place, our solitude and our hospitality easily lose their depth. And then, instead of being essential to our spiritual life, they become pious ornaments of a morally respectable existence. Our time with God and our attempts to love neighbor become nothing more than pious ornaments of a morally respectable existence. In other words, noise. Exactly what Amos said. Right? We try to say, okay, if I can't uh, sit silently before God and I I can't run and crave all of these things because I know this is creating uh, all of this sin in my heart. I'm just going to just do all the good and right things. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to sing to God more. I'm going to do all these things. And yet, if we haven't dealt with that inner turmoil of why we can't sit silently before God, it's just going to be more noise. And when it doesn't work, We're just going to avoid it. We're just going to avoid it more and more. Instead of doing this, we need to recognize not that God needs us or that we need to respond in some way, but actually that we desperately need God. We need to withdraw to worship. To look again at what Jesus does in the midst of his teaching and traveling, right? But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness to worship. The Son of God, fully divine, fully man, in his humanity, needed to withdraw from the world to worship. He needed space and time to be with his Father 
to be away from the world and to withdraw into worship of God. The Son of God, Jesus, needed to withdraw away from all the activity to worship God. And yet you and I think we can function in the world without doing so. That somehow Jesus in his humanity needed something that we don't need. We need to withdraw away from the world into worship of God because that withdrawing away and being silent before God communicates many things about who God is and who we are. It communicates that we are not God, but that there is a God. It communicates that we are finite creatures in need of connecting with God. It communicates that we are needing to get away to just hear from God. Now, there's a big difference between this and what is very popular today, which is mindfulness. If you go to any bookstore or get on any podcast, you're going to hear lots about mindfulness, which as uh, John Mark Comer in his book on silence and solitude uh, in this section, he, he says mindfulness is uh, silence and solitude without the best part, Jesus. It's like the thing Christians have been doing for centuries, just without the best part, Jesus. It's the secular version of silence and solitude. And it has tons of amazing benefits. The world is keying in on all these things and thinking, oh my goodness, what have we done to ourselves? We are anxious people walking around unable to sit in silence anywhere. We need something that will help us. Well, friends, mindfulness has its benefits. Absolutely. I'm not dogging on it. It has its benefits. But silence and solitude before God with Jesus is far better. Far better. Because we get to connect with the God of the universe. The difference is not simply that we're withdrawing away from the world to connect with ourselves in our inner selves but we're withdrawing away from the world to have Jesus look at who we are and to be known by him as we are and to connect with him. We're withdrawing away for intentional silence and solitude before God because of who Jesus is. Now, Many of you are thinking, okay, that sounds great. I would love to be able to connect with God in that way. I would love to be able to sit in silence before God, but we have lots of barriers to making that done. Do you realize how busy I am? Do you realize how busy my life is? I can't just sit in silence. What? When did Jesus withdraw into silence? Vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. I think he was busy, guys. I think Jesus was busy. Right? There's another story in which Jesus tells the disciples, hey, we're going to get away to a desolate place, just me and you. Because we've been so busy, we haven't even had time to eat. They were busy. And you know what happens in that desolate place? People see them leaving and they run to meet him on the other side of the lake. And that's where he feeds 5,000 people in a miracle. Because Jesus 
understands how busyness happens, and yet he still says, I need to draw away for silence. But the real barrier, if we're honest, isn't our busyness, isn't our schedules, isn't the number of people in our household, isn't all of those things. The real barrier is the internal noise we feel when we try to be silent before God. The real barrier is our internal stories of shame, our internal narratives in which we know that we're not adequate to stand before God, know ourselves and are afraid to just be us before God. But friends, we are not going to an angry, malicious God. We are withdrawing away to Jesus. You see, the silence that Jesus faced in the Garden of Gethsemane gives us the grace we need to have the stories of shame silenced so that we can actually sit in silence before God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus comes and he prays to God in one of these desolate places in which he's going to connect with God. And what does he pray? Three times over he prays, Lord, if there's any way that you can take this cup from me, please do it. And the answer from heaven is silence. Silence. Because Jesus must endure the cross so that you and I can lay down our sin and shame and be accepted by God. Because Jesus endured silence in his most desperate, desolate place, you and I can come and sit in silence and rest before God because Jesus has said, I love you fully. I love you fully. And not just the silence of Gethsemane, but then moving into the cross in which Jesus bore the sin of you and I on the cross so that our punishment before God has been paid so that you can be accepted. You see, our lack of silence before God because of our internal shame denies the very truth of the gospel. The gospel that we proclaim that Jesus loves you fully, has paid for your sins, and not only that, but has given you, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus and him alone, you get his perfect righteousness. His perfect record before God. So that when Jesus went into the silence and solitude in the desolate place, what do you think God said to him? The same thing he said when he publicly declared at his baptism, you are my beloved son and I am well pleased with you. That's what God desires to tell you in your silence. That's the message that God wants to deliver to you in your silence before him. He wants to assure you, I love you dearly. Come to me. Come to me. Run to the one in the wilderness who endured everything for you and allow God to silence the voices of shame and Satan. You know, it's actually far more powerful when we're convicted of sin to sit in silence before God and allow God to assure us of our salvation 
rather than us run quickly to cheap grace. No, it's fine. Jesus loved me. Jesus died for me. It's good. Does that ever really satisfy the conviction of sin? Let's sit and allow Jesus to speak to us. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. See, I said it again. I told you I'd say it again. One of my favorite passages, always. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 3. And in this encounter, we see, G, or we see God actually go on behalf of his people to silence the accusations of Satan. Then the angel showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at their angel's right hand making accusations against Joshua. This is exactly what happens to us when we go silent before God, right? We hear all of these accusations against us. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. That's the reality of the gospel. All of us are like burning sticks snatched from the fire. God has taken us out of judgment, saved us though we were sinners, and saved us for himself, and silences the accusations of Satan. Joshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the others standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Joshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins, and now I am giving you these fine new clothes. Friends, this is what Jesus does for us. This is what Jesus has done for us in the cross. If you are here this morning or watching online and you are not trusting in Jesus and him alone, the reality is if you stand before God in silence now or at the end of your life in judgment day, on judgment day, you will be found to have filthy clothes. That's the crazy thing about this story. Satan's response to the Lord probably would have been, wait a second, but look how filthy he is. The accusations are actually true. And yet, the Lord rebukes Satan and says, no, I have removed their filth. I have taken away their sins, and I have given them clean righteousness. If you are in Jesus, friends, this is true of you. And so I want to encourage you, because of Jesus, he says to you now, come, And withdraw away from your anxious world and your anxious heart. Withdraw away from your external and internal noise and withdraw to worship. Sit and listen to my voice. Sit and listen to my love. Sit and listen to my songs of delight over you. Now here's the thing. This is not something that you are going to come away from this one sermon and then tomorrow all of you are sitting for an hour in silence. It's probably not going to happen. We're going to build up to this. So tomorrow, or tonight, tonight when you do the liturgy and then tomorrow morning when you do, do the liturgy, 30 seconds. Just sit for 30 seconds in silence. Say, Jesus, 
speak to me. And then just listen. Just listen and see if God will not bring to your heart assurance of his love for you. Assurance that you're actually okay before him. That the accusations of Satan don't matter. That your own accusations of shame don't matter because Jesus speaks a better word over you. And then as you slowly build up that habit, you will find that in your moments of anxious thought, in your moments of tension, in your moments in the world in which things are difficult, you will actually be able to withdraw. Even in the midst of external noise, you will find a place of internal withdrawing and silence before God to have him speak to you. If we want to have any chance of having any impact on this city, we ought not bring our noisy hymns of praise to God apart from real heart transformation and justice. And we're not going to bring real heart transformation and justice and love of neighbor unless we are enthralled with God our Savior. And we're not going to do that if we don't spend any deep, intimate time with him alone. So let us withdraw to him, not because he says, I need you. Come to me. I need you. He says, come to me if you're weary If you feel heavy burdens, come to me and I will give you rest. So let's go to the Lord in silence. And then as he assures us us of his love, that was a hard sentence. As he assures us of his love, let us sing praises in worship to him. Let's pray together. Jesus, we need you. We are desperate for you. We thank you that you have done everything we need You have accomplished everything for us, and God, we ask that you would meet with us, that you would transform us by your spirit. Jesus, that you would do a mighty work, that when we sit in silence before you, we would actually just hear whispers of your love that would drown out our stories of shame. Jesus, would you do a mighty work, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.